Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode six of the podcast. Yes, we're still here. I'm Justin, and as always, with me is... Riz. Hey, there he is. So let's let's get into this. We have, as I promised, Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. When he growed up this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. All right. So uh, as we talked about uh, last week, uh, the point of Honest Dave's housekeeping hangout is to go over clarifications from other episodes, address listener outrage, as it were, <laughs> or or anything else that we feel needs to be addressed on uh, our weekly podcast. Last week, we, if you haven't listened, we did a, pretty much a whole episode about the idea of white wokeness, white, white liberal wokeness. And I was making the claim that a lot on the far left, a lot in this sort of woke crowd, uh, attempts to see every inequality in life through the eyes of an inequity. I brought up a bunch of different examples, and there was one example that I gave that seemed to really strike a chord because I heard from like three or four different people who basically told me I was full of it. I had made the claim that women's soccer players made made less money than male soccer players because they had a uh, less viewership and that it wasn't due to sexism or some kind of uh, you know societal inequity a few of you guys listened to it i was immediately called by one of my best buddies who was like uh yeah sorry the episode was fine but um you were completely full of it on that one he then proceeded to send me three different articles that proved in his eyes at least that I was wrong and that actually women were being discriminated against on the basis of their sex and that their the viewership was actually higher these articles were claiming than the viewership for male soccer. Now I don't really know much about this, but after reading the three articles I was convinced that this was something I got wrong and I posted a clarification on our blog and it went up on our social media sites. About three minutes later, we heard from another friend of the pod who was like, actually, you didn't need to apologize for anything. You were completely right. These articles are out of context. It was Officer Ed, wasn't it? It was Officer Ed, yes. I didn't want to post his thing and then get into a back and forth. Uh, I didn't think that was appropriate on our blog, but it is up on our blog. It's up on our social media. You could read the three articles yourself. You could do the research. If this is something that you're uh, passionate about or that you know something about, we would love to hear you chime in. Seems like the opinions on this are varied. Uh, maybe there are certain contexts that uh, paint each scenario in a different light. But anyway, it's up there for, for your enjoyment. Please feel free to chime in. It's it's interesting, Jay, because um, what I'm finding is that the culture war topics are the ones that people are a lot more likely to engage in. That you know, no one no one pontificates on Facebook at least over like tax code, <laughs> except for us. right? Except for us. Meaning of democracy? You mean they'd rather talk about sports? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's these it's these cultural issues that seem to really strike a chord with people. So another one that I wanted to bring up in this housekeeping hangout, I've gotten a, a, some serious blowback from some of my friends on the left for something I said in episode, I think it was episode two of this podcast, which is when I said that I didn't believe that Donald Trump was a racist. 
that I thought, I think the exact words I used was that I think he is literally, he doesn't have the intellectual capacity to be a racist. A lot of my friends on the left were like, this is such a stupid position. He's clearly racist and you don't have to have intellectual capacity to be racist. It's something that could be completely innate inside you. And while I do agree with that, I thought about it for the last week or two, because I've heard from several people who were like, yeah, everything you said was great, but I did not agree with that. I thought about it, and here's why it bothers me. It's not that he's not racist and or that I'm denying he's racist or that I think you have to have a, a certain level of intellectual ability in order to be a racist. It's that I look at Donald Trump as such a small human being that big words that elevate him, that mean a lot, just rub me the wrong way. It's exactly why I don't like the Trump-Hitler comparisons. I've always said that stupid comparison to make. First of all, it's it's demeaning to the people who actually were went through the Holocaust and, and either survived or saw a lot of their loved ones and relatives die. When Donald at the end of Donald Trump's presidency, if we find out he was building a railroad and killing tons of Mexicans <laughs> that we didn't know about and like exterminating them in ovens and gassing them underneath the wall, that, then I change my opinion. As I said, I think in, in, in episode two, Hitler was an extraordinarily ideological man. And while I don't want to put him on a pedestal either, comparing the two to me is I think there's a certain amount of people that actually, it does the opposite effect of what it was intended. It elevates Trump. And there's enough people in this country that don't care about the fact that he's a racist, but would care about the fact that he's an idiot. So I've always made the, made the claim that you cannot be an idiot and an evil genius at the same time. Because it implies ideology. It implies the ability to have ideology. It implies the ability to have forethought. It implies the ability to have strategy. He's shown that none of that exists. Exactly, exactly. That that is a perfect way of putting it. And uh, so I'm sticking with that position. And you know, if you think he's a racist, that's that's cool too. I don't think it really, in the end of the day, it, it means anything. I don't think it's going to ha- labeling him a racist is 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 not going to get him elected or not elected. You know, every everything with Trump is baked into the cake, as we will get into later in this episode. If you guys hear something on Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout that you agree or disagree with, please let us know. Sound off, and you may be on the next one. Speaking of which, we should talk a little bit about the guests that we have coming up on our episode six addendum. We most certainly should. Uh, We're going to make these two separate things this week. As you can see in your list of episodes, there's going to be two instead of one. We have an amazing guest, Professor Adam McLeod, who is a, a law professor. He is a specialist in civil discourse, exactly what you saw happen here today. And we're so interested in that. The interview is amazing. You're going to love it. And we're posting it up uh, pretty much in its totality for you to hear. Great, great interview. It is it is for all you people who love highbrow engagement and this kind of stuff. Um, I think some of you will really enjoy it. This week, we got our first official question from a listener. It was a, a big enough question for me, at least personally, where I was like, Jay, we need to do a full episode on this question because I have a lot to say on it. The question was as follows. And and by the way, this was from one of our far right-wing listeners who uh, is also a Trump fan. And the question was as follows. Why does the left expect me to be as outraged as they are over the things Trump says and does? What if I'm simply not outraged over it? So I heard that question and I went, okay, and I did sort of the Dr. Evil thing. And I was like, I can answer this one in a number of different ways. Yeah, before we get into that, I thought it was important to start this podcast off with a certain tone, because here's the deal. 
We've listened to Riz hit the left a great deal. And I got to hang out and eat popcorn and chime in where I wanted. And there's a lot we agree on there. But now it's time for me to hit the right and step up. And it's Riz's turn to eat the popcorn and chime in because I know there's a lot we agree on here as well. Now, I want to start this off by saying I'm both a conservative and I'm also a Messianic Jew, which means that I believe in and follow Jesus and the Bible, both testaments. So for those who aren't familiar with that particular categorization, let's just use the word Christian. So go ahead and put me in that box, although I'm going to do my level best to defy your stereotypes. I also graduated recently with my master's in theology from Covenant Seminary through a joint program with the University of Cambridge, so I've done my homework here. Now, let me say this plain and simple so that no clarification is needed. What I mean to say is, I'm about to say something that's very controversial. Now, if you're a Christian and you think Donald Trump is a Christian, you're wrong. (laughs) Now, while I don't know Donald Trump's heart, he's certainly not living according to what he claims to believe. Now, here's something else controversial. If you're a Christian and you support Donald Trump and you do not call out his immoral and scandalous behavior, You are doing a great and horrible disservice, not just to your faith, but you're also turning people off to listening to you at a very serious rate. And guess what? You're wrong. If I was hypocritical in my faith in that way, it becomes a non-starter for conversation. I don't even know if Riz and I would be sitting here. And conversation and relationship are exactly how we're called to reach people. Humans are flawed. Humans are fallen and sinful. Neither Donald Trump nor I are exceptions to that. But the difference between Donald Trump and the morality held up in the Christian faith is that we are called to repent our sin to be humble and repentant before God, especially our leaders, for those scripture lovers, as it's written in 1 Peter 5, which Donald Trump has most certainly not done or read, I might add. We're called to hold our brothers and sisters to our moral standards. So why are you not doing that here? Why is this any different? However, I do believe you can support the administration without supporting the man. That is to say, there are certain things that the president and the administration have set into motion that are ideals and policies of the Republican platform. Do I wish they were enacted by a different president? Of course I do, but I can't sit here and tell you that on principle I'll flush everything down the toilet just because he's immoral and has the vocabulary of a sixth grader. If I agree with the policies coming out of the White House, I will support those policies because I think they're good for the country. I will not wish our country harm just because I don't like my president. I don't wish him failure because failure for him would mean failure for the country. However, I do wish him out of office, and I wish that more of the Republican Party, aside from the Daily Wire crew, could see him for what he is and and wish the same. Donald Trump perpetuates a fractured Republican Party, a party that sold its soul to this administration, perhaps never to return again. The fringe part of the party that the media covers, much like the left, is fraught with conspiracy theories, actual fake news, repressed illogical anger and confusion. This has all been perpetrated and exacerbated by our sitting president. Is the brand of the Republican Party shattered forever? Time will tell. But I know it's taken the biggest hit I can remember it taking. Even since the Tea Party took the reins, I would say it sits probably on the next two elections. This picture that conservatives have drawn of your liberal, your outraged liberal today, there's this meme that goes around of this, I'm sure everyone's seen it at this point. Uh, It's it's this woman who is kneeled on the ground, I'm assuming she's a feminist, and it's the day that Donald Trump won, and she's screaming at the sky, no! And, you know, right-wing media has taken that image and painted all of liberalism with this broad brush, this idea that we're so sensitive, that we just can't handle it, that Donald Trump won, and we're all just crying every day, and we just, we, we, you know, we're just going out of our minds. And what I know is that there is a subset of people 
who are legitimately outraged over the things that Trump says and the the actions that he takes and the things that he does on Twitter and, and you know the statements he makes at his press conferences day in and day out. And I think most of the people who are outraged, honestly, are mostly women. I mean, if you look at, at Trump's um, approval ratings among women, they're historically low. I, mean, I don't think there's ever been a president that's had lower approval ratings among women. No, especially especially among the conservative base. The, the one thing he's really lost there is, is women. The, the, the soccer mom, security moms the Bush uh, in the Bush administration, they used to call them. Yeah, the, they, they do not like Trump. I think they don't like his rhetoric. And, and he has lost a lot of them. It's been really, really terrible for the Republican Party, as we'll get to later. Most of us, the, the, the large majority of liberals are not indeed outraged over the things that Trump says. We are outraged over the fact that the the people who are supposed to be outraged over Trump are no longer outraged. Religious morality is so embedded in the brand of conservatism that you know Trump comes along and says things that are so antithetical to religious and moral values and our outrage is not over him but rather over the fact that suddenly you're not outraged anymore over this. And that is hypocrisy at the highest level. And that is really what's gotten under our skin. It is not the individual things Trump says. I think most liberals laugh at that. This whole idea of the snowflake liberal, you've heard that word, I'm sure. The idea that li- these that liberals are just so delicate and they can't handle it, it's just not true. It, 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 it's, it's conservative sleight of hand. And the outrage coming from liberals is more of, of the outrage over the fact that you're not outraged. It's founded outrage. I mean, it's it's understandable. It's it's what I'm calling people out to right now. It's, it's the fact that you, what you're living doesn't match what you're preaching. And it, it's going to look like hypocrisy to anybody. It's not Trump derangement syndrome. It is a derangement syndrome for liberals, but it's cause, it's a derangement syndrome that's caused by your indifference, not by, by Trump as a man. To take this a step further, when the Access Hollywood tape came out, I was watching it live on CNN. I have the TV on and you know my jaw hit the floor. And I think to myself, well, that's it. The first thing I did was I called my father and uh, he picks up the phone and I say, so, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be president. What do you have to say about that? He's like, what are you talking about? I was like, you don't have, you don't have the news on? He's like, no, what did he do now? And I was like, oh, just turn on CNN and then call me back like in 10 minutes. He sure enough calls me back and he goes, you're right. There's no way he's going to survive that. Now he said that and we both agreed on that and we were both wrong. But we agreed because we both assumed there was a line that religious conservatives were not going to cross and that that was it right there. You know, the conservative party is based on moral values and and it's steeped in it. So, of course, something like that happens. The first inclination is to think, well, that's it for his base. Right. So that night. You know, obviously, both my father and I were wrong. Um, but that night, I was texting with my cousin-in-law, who is a huge Trump nut. I mean, a nut. Like, I don't want to insult anyone who likes Trump out there, but this guy is like one of those. He drives to rallies. He he's already in the state of Florida. Also, I think we've crossed that line. Episode <laughs> exactly right. So you know, I te- I had texted him, and I was you know we we had been engaging in text conversation where we were basically just trolling each other constantly. And I texted him. I was like, "Too bad about your uh, your guy. He's gonna lose there." And he goes, "What? Because of the Access Hollywood tape? You know, you've said a thousand times worse." And I I sat there and I thought about it for a second. And I thought to myself, you know what? I probably have, honestly. You know, I'm going to be completely honest with our listeners here. 
I, you know, I wouldn't do it now. I have to believe that if I was in college right now, that wouldn't be a part of my everyday vernacular because I think this is an evolution that is a good thing, that that is being stomped out of society, that now if you act like that, you're ridiculed and embarrassed. That is a good thing for society. That is a good evolution. I've, I've thought about some of the things I've said and done in my past. I've tried to repent for those things. I've apologized to people I've had. I felt like I had to apologize for. But yeah, my co- my cousin-in-law was absolutely right. I probably have said things that are just as bad or worse. And you know what? Here's the thing: it doesn't matter. And here's why it doesn't matter. Number one, I am not running for president. It doesn't matter though, not just because I wouldn't, I wasn't running for president, but also because, frankly, I'm a liberal. And liberals sort of have a get out of jail free card when it comes to this thing. My morality comes from my parents, my upbringing, and my experience in life, and not from religion and not from God. I'm not a religious person. So I consider myself a very moral person now, today, as an adult with two kids. But that morality didn't come from church. It didn't come from synagogue. It didn't come from God. I will admit, I'll be the first to admit, it is easier to be a liberal than it is to be a conservative for that very reason, that I don't care. I said this back in episode one. I don't get morally outraged by anyone, including any of my any anyone's behavior. It doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't bother me because I have my own sense of morality that I don't project onto anyone else. But conservative, religious conservative America has been doing that for many years. Wouldn't you say, Jay? I I absolutely agree with the fact that they've been doing it for a number of years. I think that it's founded in some truthfulness. I do think that the founding fathers who were religious men, I think that all morality comes from biblical, Judeo-Christian biblical values. And whether or not you move those boundary lines later, its origin is still in the same place. Because that's where we get those things from as a society. Those values you have inherently in you, I believe, those things are put in you by God. You know not to murder people because we have those things. We have the Ten Commandments and we have things placed into us by God to know not murdering someone is bad. There are some inherent truths in the fact that morality generally comes from those Judeo-Christian values. And those are written into our documents. So yes and no. Okay. Okay. You know, and if this was, you know, even just 10 years ago, I had a much different outlook on religion in general. I used to look at religion as just a net negative for the world, all religion. I have really changed my opinion. I've come around to that. And I have, it has been because of experiences I've had with friends like you, where I've seen how much it's done for you um, in a positive way. It It's also been research I've done. And I've realized that a lot of the morality, the sort of Jude- Judeo-Christian ethic that you're talking about is even if you're not religious, if you're a moral person, it's embedded in your morality, even if you don't realize it. I get that. It's important to separate the people from the books because you could meet a number of people who are from the church. They'll give you a very different impression than if you go and read scripture. In the wake of Trump, there has been sort of a conservative pivot to live and let live. Live and let live is a liberal or a libertarian philosophy. The idea that whatever you're doing, as long as it doesn't affect me negatively or my family negatively, I don't care. I'm not outraged by it, okay? Religious conservatives were never live and let live, ever. My whole life and probably 100 years prior to that, they had a serious problem with homosexuality and were willing to speak their mind about it. They had a serious problem with the Beatles, 
Okay, and we're willing, very vocal about that with the 60s. You know, when Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction happened at the Super Bowl, it wasn't liberals who were outraged over that. There were no liberals sitting at home like, I can't believe that. It was conservatives who were very much outraged because we saw Janet Jackson's nipple for 0.05 seconds. They had to run to church that night. You know, these are, these are, it has always been religious America that has tried, that has, attempted to paint that narrative and has called the rest of us sinners. You know, here's here's a good analogy, Jay. Let's say I sat down with a mutual friend and we're having beers and my mutual friend says to me, Riz, I got to tell you something, dude. I'm cheating on my wife. Now, as a good friend of this person, I would do everything I can to try to talk them out of it, okay? Because I know as a human being, it doesn't ever end well. So you, you know, I would say, dude, I love you for your own sanity and for your own sake and for your well-being, you should cut it out before it gets any worse. You know, what I wouldn't do is change my opinion about that person on a moral level. To me, that is not my, that's not my position. I would try to talk him out of it, but I would not change my opinion of him as a person. That is liberalism. My liberalism dictates that my morality does not, I don't have a say in anything that you are doing in your personal life. Now, of course, there, there are different situations. If, if my friend that, that I was sitting down with, if I was as good of friends with his wife, then it'd be a different story because then you'd be also hurting one of my other good friends. At the same time, there is a difference between immorality and illegality. A very big difference. While adultery is immoral, and especially immoral in the eyes of God, it is not illegal in the eyes of the law. So if my friend sat down with me and said, I got to tell you something, dude, I just murdered somebody. I'd ask to, to get up to go to the bathroom, and I would, I would kindly call the police and have them arrested because I, I believe in laws, and that is against the law. No matter how good a friend he was to me, I would call the cops because I believe that murder is a sin, okay? And I do believe that adultery is a sin also, but it's not illegal. And that kind of sin is not, it's not my place to judge my friend. Does that make sense? It does, but but allow me to challenge that for a minute because I do think, I, I, I track with you, but I also think there is some, there is an argument on the other side that I'd least like to make. And that is after your friend sits you down and he tells you this information, how would you feel about him being alone with your wife? How would you feel about him watching your children? Is there a, a place, because I understand that you're going to spring into action if there's something illegal going on. But I do think that the morality plays a role and it will imprint on you in some way, whether it's subconscious or not. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd really have to think about that. I, I, I don't think that it would have any effect with this person hanging out with my wife because I trust my wife. So, you know, that, you know, and, and I, I would trust my friend, even if he was doing something that I thought was immoral. If he was a good friend of mine, I would trust him in terms of whether I would trust them. Uh, I would trust this person watching my kids. Uh, again, I don't see any any connection there. I don't think that somebody who's doing who's engaged in something that I personally find immoral, or even if I found it in my own personal view evil, I don't think that necessarily would mean that this person couldn't be a good babysitter at the same time. Again, I'm not God, so I am not going to judge any of my friends based on what they're doing in their personal life. And to me, that is a big part of liberalism. If you're if you call yourself a liberal and you're not on board with that idea, maybe you're not a liberal. The idea of liberalism is the idea that you don't dictate 
what other people are doing in their personal lives, and you don't have a high sense of morality that everyone else needs to follow. That is left to God. That is left to religious people. For sure. But where that butts up against conservatism, the scale starts to slide. And that is, if we're, we're taking this micro argument and making it uh, macro, and you want to talk about the Janet Jackson thing, it's just, it's where does it end? If we allow this, then tomorrow we're going to allow this. And the next day we're going to allow this. And then it gets uncontrollable. And then how are we raising our society? That's really where the conservative argument comes into play. Well, you know, you know, and this is a great way to segue back because you just used a very good word, which was allow. The idea that conservative America has been allowing us to get away with this is something to me that just, it just doesn't sit right with me because nobody, if I'm not breaking any laws, nobody should tell me what I'm allowed to do on a moral level. It's us talking about ourselves. I'm not saying there's the Gestapo who's going to be saying you can't show your nipple on television, but I'm going to say there is an inner voice of morality that we're all given, and that is the, the conservative argument. And we should be able to tell ourselves, whether that's on an organizational basis or a personal basis, hey, this is enough. How do you know not to cheat on your wife? You know this is enough. So how do you know not to feed someone's nipple on national television into children's eyes? You should know this is enough. It's the same thing to me. The point is, though, that all of that argument goes out the window when you get to Trump. Well, that's really what we're discussing here. That's the, that's the bigger problem. Yeah, that I get. When you relate it all back to Trump, all of it is negated. We bring, we've brought up Ben Shapiro several times on the show, and I think for good reason. You know, he's, he's probably the most prominent conservative commentator at a, a, after Rush Limbaugh, certainly the most prominent younger one. And, uh, you know, so we'll probably bring him up a lot. But, you know, I listen to his show from time to time, and he, he always makes the case that he hates this whole uh, what if Obama said it narrative because he claims that Obama was a serious, sober man, and Trump isn't. Trump, Trump is just like a bumbling buffoon idiot. So when Obama said something, I would really take it seriously. And a lot of times Obama would say something and it would turn into policy. Whereas Trump, Shapiro always says on Trump's tombstone, it's going to say uh, 45th president of the United States. He said a lot of crap, you know, and that's, that's fine. Maybe that's true. It's a little unfair, especially for Ben, because Ben is I mean, you can't argue the fact that the dude is a genius. He's incredibly bright. And so, you know, he understands the weight of the office of the president and the things that come out of the office of the president should be taken on the same scale. And you should understand that the president should understand the weight of the office of the president. And if he's saying things, he should take that into consideration when they come out of his mouth. Now, that should be that should be laid equally across every single president to ever hold that office. And it's not. And that is the problem here. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm totally fine with the president's with each individual president being different people. And I actually thought Obama had a great sense of humor. He was a classic liberal in the fact that he could he could take a joke, he could give a joke, he could deliver a joke. Um, he was, he yes, he was a serious man. But this idea that, um, you know, obviously presidents could, can be, can all be different. But the idea that, that Trump is, because he's not a serious man, we don't have to take him seriously. He's the freaking president of the United States. Okay. When the president speaks, he's the most powerful man in the world. You have to, you have to take him seriously. There's weight that comes with those words, whether they are idiotic or very, very thoughtful words. Let's move on to what I think the future of the Republican party is and how this all 
how everything sort of ties into Trump. So before we get into the future of the Republican Party, I got a new segment for us. And since we don't drink hard alcohol on this show, we don't, you know, go into multiple drinks, but we have a beer or two. So I'm not going to call it drunk history. Also, that's already been taken. I'm going to call it buzzed history. And it's got a theme song. And this is it. All right. So we're going to start with the Federalists. They're on the left. We got George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton. They believed in a strong central government, national banking. And Washington, actually, as an aside, he warned people about the dangers of political parties in general. This party was dissolved after the War of 1812. On the right, we have the Democratic Republicans. 1792, we got Thomas Jefferson, we got James Madison. They believed in decentralized, limited government. They won in 1800. And in 1824, we had four Democratic Republicans running against each other. John Quincy Adams won. Now, in response to that win, New York Senator Martin Van Buren started the Democratic Party, as we know it. Andrew Jackson won in 1828, running under that party, uh, after Jackson vetoed a bill renewing the charter of the National Bank. Now, in 1832, in response, the Whig Party, representing the right, was founded by Senator Henry Clay of Kentucky. The Democrats would win all but two presidential elections from 1828 to 1856. They splintered over slavery in the 1850s. The Southern Democrats favored slavery in all territories. Their Northern counterparts thought each territory should decide for itself via popular referendum. The split in the party allowed the victory of the newly formed Republican Party, which as we know it today, and its winner was Abraham Lincoln in, in the 1860 election. Now, the victory of the Union in the Civil War left the Republican Party in control of Congress, and they would dominate that for the rest of the 19th century, freeing the slaves throughout the country. The Democrats would continue to hold sway in the South, opposing the protection of civil and voting rights for African-Americans. This is where we'd see the Southern state legislatures create and enforce Jim Crow laws. Now, at the end of the 19th century, the Republican Party would begin to resemble the party as we know it today, the party of big business brought forth by the Gilded Age, while the Democrats would identify with rural agrarianism and conservative values. Now, another split was due for the Democrats between the conservative and progressive members. In 1896, William Bryan advocated for an expanded role of government, in ensuring social justice. And although he lost to McKinley, this piece of democratic ideology remained as we see it today. The Republicans dominated national politics in the 1920s, promising pluralism and ushering in finance, railroads, industry, and support for the middle classes. Teddy Roosevelt brought successful antitrust lawsuits breaking up the oil companies, and the party ran on a platform for, for the promotion of business interests, but stumbled after the market crash of 29. And of course, then we had the Great Depression. As FDR became the first Democrat to win the election since Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat winning streak would take the country through the next 60 years. Within that 60 years, the party went through a series of identity shifts, from Truman's pro-civil rights platform to Lyndon Johnson's Civil and Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 65. The South shifted to become a Republican-dominated region, driven by issues of race, abortion, and other cultural positions. After this period, we really see the origins of modern divisiveness, in politics, starting with Nixon. And so this is where we land when we talk about the parties of modern day. Each party is a result of where it began in its ideology, as it went through agrarian America, the Industrial Revolution, the technological age, and now the information age we have of 24-7 fake news, where neither party is united. End of buzzed history. Wow, excellent segment, Jay. Thank you. I didn't slur once. It was really good. I mean, for being buzzed, I mean, I, I got to say, you've become a great professor in your old age. Thank you. It's the gray in my beard. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then there came Trump. We could, we, could, we could say that that could be a whole new segment in and of itself. After that history lesson, that, you know, this is a great jumping off point from there. Support of Trump from so-called conservatives has forever 
and irreparably altered the brand of the Republican Party. Especially when you when you consider the support Trump has had from religious conservatives. To me, a pivot back to family values and religious morality after Trump just won't be taken seriously. It, even a hundred years from now, it is just impossible for me. And let me explain why. Okay, I have an analogy. Actually, I think I'm going to have several analogies in this uh, in this episode. Remember the mu- the the movie American Beauty? It's one of those movies that uh, I was just watching recently, and it didn't hold up. It does not seem anywhere near as profound as it did back then. Uh, but you know, there's other movies like that too, like uh, Fight Club that we were really into. I remember all of us were like obsessed with that movie. I watched that recently also, and thought it was like really pretentious and didn't enjoy it that much. Well, when you think about American Beauty now, it's like a really inappropriate love affair. It's a horrific movie when you really think about it. It is. I'm bringing it up because there's there's this one particular scene, which is probably Kevin Spacey's best acting he's ever done. Um, so for those who haven't seen the movie, there's going to be a spoiler alert in here. Kevin Spacey plays sort of the typical loser father. And then he has this awakening. We don't have to get into what causes the awakening, but he has this awakening. And he gets this job at this drive-thru where he's now you know serving burgers out of the drive-thru window. And he catches his wife red-handed having an affair who's Annette Benning, and she like pulls up and she realizes it she tries to bully him and tries to again sort of do treat him the way she's been treating him for the last however many years and in sort of this very slow delivery he looks her dead in the eyes and he says you don't get to tell me what to do ever again I don't know how that even popped in my head. But I was like, that is a perfect analogy for, I think, what the liberal or left-leaning sentiment is going to be when the inevitable pivot back to religious morality happens after Trump. There is going to be a collective eye roll and sort of a figurative stare into the eyes of every conservative who cares about that stuff. And we are going to say, you don't get to tell us what to do ever again. And when people are still asking why 100 years from now, the answer is still going to be Trump because Trump. As we've said, identity politics is wrong. Putting people in a large groups of people in a box is wrong. So why doesn't the same apply here? We're a country of individuals. We have different party systems, but within those different party systems, unfortunately, it's quite splintered. There is a contingent. I mean, I am one of them who doesn't support the man, support some of the ideas and the platform, but I obviously don't support the man and call him a hypocrite. Am I not covered by the Republican Party just because this is the conservative president? Okay, well, two things. Number one, you have to look at the approval rating of Trump within the Republican Party, which is the highest approval rating of any president in in modern Republican history. He's got like a 95% approval rating. I mean, so that's one thing. Number two, if the Republicans want to pivot back to or pivot to a uh, more libertarian sense of morality where, you know, we won't talk about this stuff anymore. We'll just leave it at that. I'm totally cool with that. That actually would be healthy for me. But the point is that there is a block in my brain. I admit it. Completely. But my point is, is forget, forget the libertarian thing for a second. If and when there is a pivot back to conservative moral values post-Trump, and it's from a contingent of people that were not Trump supporters, Does that taken seriously or not? Does Trump ruin the brand forever? That's really the question. It's hard to answer that because we'd have to see 
the proof that they weren't Trump supporters. There's very few in Congress. And so if you're talking about new people, that kind of, and we'll get to that because I want to get to what's going to happen if Trump loses. So I'll, I will pivot. I will personally pivot back to that. You know, the point is for me that if you're a religious conservative that supports Trump, I can't even listen to what you have to say right at this moment on morality. And I think that's a very fair position. It has to be. You know, and you see conservatives starting to try to test the waters. In fact, I'll bring up one example. When Rashida Tlaib, who was a garbage Democratic congresswoman who is anti-Semitic to boot, I think it was it was the first week she was in uh, in the halls of Congress, and she used the word mother. Uh, she said something like, "We're going to impeach the mother." Right? I'm sure everyone remembers that. And the right went crazy. The sanctity of Congress. She used those words in the halls of Congress. Is is there nothing sacred to these liberals anymore? And everyone I knew, I wish you could see me right now, but we were like, go yourselves. Honestly, I don't like Rashida Tlaib, but if you're going to bring up the sanctity of the office and how everything has to be kept pure still, to me, that was that was Republicans testing the waters. They wanted to see when Trump loses, if Trump loses, are we going to be able to pivot back to that? Let's just try it out. And I think they sort of realized it wasn't going to work So because they haven't done it since. And there's been plenty of things that, again, Democrats say inappropriate things all the time. They're liberals. They're allowed to say inappropriate things. Everyone should be able to say inappropriate things. In my view, I'm a liberal. So if you're a religious conservative that supports Trump, I can't listen to you on this. Now, if you are a conservative who doesn't support Trump, you know, one of the Steve Schmitz or George Conway's or Rick Wilson's, one of these guys that is uh, involved in this Lincoln project, conservatives against Trump, then I can listen to you. And that's why I say, Jay, if you were a Trumper, and I don't use that term in a derogatory fashion. I mean, if you were a, a Trump supporter, I couldn't have this podcast with you. You know, you mentioned that earlier. I couldn't. But one, one other thing I want to say, again, I'm, I have a lot of sort of analogies and examples on this episode, but this is a good one. I was watching like one of these comedy shows and they were doing the like live from a Trump rally. At a Trump rally, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of conservative Christians, but when you see the people <laughs> like that they get on camera, it's let's just say it's not typically the religious right that are wearing the Trump shirts and the hats and like, yeah, best president ever, man. So I, I was watching this, this rally. I think it was down in Florida, as you would expect. What is with Florida, by the way? I, I can't speak to it, even though I was raised there. I have no good excuse for Florida. Seriously, I mean, it's not just Florida, man. It's like literally every single time Florida, like if I'm in another room doing laundry and there's news on in the other room and I hear Florida, I know it's bad news. No, there's never good news. Your reaction is the same as mine. If I hear something that's going on in Florida, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's either a child abduction, like the 50th one that day, <laughs> you know, or or an alligator jumped out of the water at Disney World and killed a kid, or a hurricane. What is going on in Florida? There's something in the water down there. Anyway, I, maybe it's the heat. One day it's going to float away and we'll no longer have those problems. <laughs> so I'm watching this rally in Florida, and um, there was a big group that they were interviewing. I think they were the Hell's Angels for Trump, right? And they had the jackets on. And again, I'm sure there's some religious Hell's Angels, but let's just say these guys weren't part of the evangelical crowd, okay? And half of them were wearing these shirts that said, for Trump, okay? <laughs> and... The guy's like, what, you know, the guy doing the interview was like, what do you love so much about Donald Trump? What is it about him? And he's like, I love the fact that Donald Trump is an just like me. I'm an I was raised to be 
but my parents, Donald Trump is sticking it to them libs. He's always, you know, telling it like it is just like me. He's the first president I've ever voted for in my life. And I've been alive for 60 years because he's the first guy that I can relate to. And he talks like me. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I have nothing in common with this dude, but in this weird way, I could sit down with him and have a more civil measured conversation about this than I could with a with a religious conservative trumper. I could sit there and at least say this guy is not pretending to be something he's not. It's about a measure of respect. Right. You respect that this person is being honest and wearing his heart on his sleeve so to speak. Exactly. So you know, I'm watching uh I'm flipping channels the other night and I you know, I land on Fox News which I do sometimes and it was Laura Ingram's Ingram angle. I mean, you know, I don't know how many of you people out there are interested in the angle of long- Laura Ingram, but I'm certainly not one of them. But sometimes it's like it's like a car accident. You can't turn your, you know, you can't turn your head away. You have to kind of look at it. For those who don't know Laura Ingram, she's a Fox News opinion host. She is one of the most sycophantic Trump people. I don't think she's ever said a bad word about Trump. If she has, please write it in the comment section of the blog. She's doing a whole segment. She's also extremely anti-marijuana. And I have become extremely pro. I've always been pro-marijuana, but I've actually, I didn't start smoking pot till I was an adult. Now that it is available legally in the state of California where I live, uh, I use it for a lot of things. I I use the drops. I use the vapes. It is better than putting one of these pharmaceuticals in your body. I'd rather put something in, in your body that grows in the ground, right? But Laura Ingram has very, very strong beliefs on this. You know, it, it, she's, so she's doing this whole segment about the dangers of marijuana. And she says, quote, it will destroy our culture if we legalize marijuana. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, marijuana bad, Trump good? How can I possibly take you seriously? It, Trump's not destroying the culture. Click, turned it off. It's a mental block. I would hope that at some point we're able to separate the people that are being hypocritical from the people who want to have a conversation because there are conversations to be had about marijuana. There are conversations to be had within this political environment. But if we have a mental block that's happening because of hypocrisy, then that is an issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So, you know, I want to just reiterate to close this up that my disdain is specific to religious conservatives, you know, not the bikers for Trump or the truckers for Trump crowd. If your rationale is I like Trump because he's just like me, I can actually have some kind of respect for that. I don't agree with you, but it really is the specific to the religious conservatives that has made me just so angry about this whole thing. I think you owe it to that subset of people to be more specific, because I think when you just say the word religious conservatives, you're really being unfair because you're talking about religious conservatives that preach their love of Trump as a Christian, which is a very specific subset versus religious conservatives that, number one, may not like Trump, religious conservatives that support his agenda and the Republican Party. There are subsets of these people. And I think what's really angering you is the hypocrisy in a Christian person who says, I hold the Bible up as the word of God and the the center of morality. Yet Trump, he can do whatever he wants and he's good by me. That I get. But to put all religious conservatives in that box, I think is very unfair. Yeah. I mean, I will challenge that a little bit because the religious right has been so specific for so many years about the things that they have disapproved of in our society. And to essentially let that go, I don't care. I know a lot of people love the fact that Trump went to the the Right for Life march, okay? I know there's a lot of people who like, 
I mean, Trump gives red meat to those people. I get that part, okay? But his, again, his behavior and his demeanor is so antithetical to religious values that even if you like a policy, I still can't wrap my head around it. That's just my position. And you talked about this in the first episode that when the GOP started to lose you a little bit is when they started injecting all those religious values as a part of their platform. I'm saying that now they seem to be rapidly uninjecting it. It is specific to those that support Trump. The people that do not are saying the same things that they've always said, and I stand behind those things. It's really the people who are saying, hey, I'm telling you to do this, and then holding up a man who doesn't do those things. That's where I have a, a, a serious problem. I get it. I get it. Okay. Lastly, I want to say that I think conservatives made sort of a devil's bargain with Trump, in, and it was a devil's bargain in order to win the election. You know, the, the bargain part was that this was a guy that was going to give you everything that we've been saying uh, a Republican president was going to give you. The judges, which, by the way, after the Supreme Court decision that happened a few days ago, uh, the Equality Act, where Gorsuch, who was supposed to be the tried and true, he was supposed to be the guy. He voted with the liberals. So for all the talk about, you know, the, a Republican president is going to give you guys everything that you want, it doesn't even end up working out that way. One of the only guys I know that uh, that really believed that was Donald Trump. Right. But, you know, th so the bargain part was we're going to give you the judges. We're going to we're going to give you the tax cuts. OK, those are sort of like the two big things that conservatives want, the judges and the tax cuts. OK, the devil part is that this guy, Donald Trump, is like the worst human being in the country. I just want to talk very briefly about stuff that Donald Trump was engaged in before he was president. You know, he owned and operated a completely fraudulent university. If you go to the Better Business Bureau, it was rated an F, okay? He was taking people's money and not delivering anything. He routinely stiffed his creditors in the business world. This is known, again, apparently working for any Trump business is a terrible experience. I mean, he the conditions are supposed to be horrible. He stiffs his creditors. He's been known to do that for years and years and years. This is part of how he got rich. He brags about his, his history of sexual abuse constantly. He told Howard Stern that his personal Vietnam was surviving the 60s. Now, that's not insulting to, or, you know, to anyone who's actually in Vietnam, is it? I mean, this is a guy with no moral character whatsoever. He made up conspiracies that were always seemingly racial in nature. I mean, the Central Park Five thing was a, something he stuck with for a long time, absolutely abhorrent. Barack Obama wasn't born in America. The whole birther thing, that was Trump's brainchild without any proof whatsoever, that really had a, a serious effect on the country, even just, just making that up. He also said that Muslims in New York were cheering during 9-11. There's no video evidence of this. It's been debunked over and over and over again. He's never apologized for it. There's no audio evidence of it. So this is a guy that is to me, one of the worst human beings in the world. You made a bargain with him and now you have to live with it. So good luck. In my opinion, it's a failure of two parties. The last election was really a failure of the Democratic and Republican Party. I don't think either candidate was viable. Was one better than the other? Maybe you're not. You can argue those. But I feel the same way about the upcoming election. We have the oldest presidents ever in the history of this country. Why is that? There has to be some young blood out there that are idealistic and excited about running this country in, in an interesting way. And there's none of it. And I believe that to be a failure of our party system in general. And it's it's disheartening. A plague on both your houses! Your houses!
We will have a whole episode, I'm sure, about Joe Biden. We'll have a whole episode, I'm sure, about Hillary Clinton. And uh, the, all the people who see those people, those two, as one and the same. That's not going to be this episode. <laughs> to wrap this whole thing up in a neat little bow before we get to uh, an ad from one of our not sponsors, what will Republicans do? if Trump loses in November. Now, this this is up for some debate. I, I've been talking about this for a while, and a lot of my friends on the left think I am dead wrong about this. So feel free to voice your opinion. My opinion is that there are very few one-term presidencies that are looked upon as successful presidencies. If you couldn't convince the people again as an incumbent president to vote for you, it's usually looked upon that your presidency was a failure. You know, there's only so much you could get done in four years, and especially residing over the greatest economic collapse in American history and the, you know, this pandemic, which was, again, completely botched, in my opinion. I believe if Trump loses, there is going to be an exodus from Trumpism faster than anything you've ever seen in your life. You're seeing some of it right now. I think you're seeing some people prep for it. The people that have been excited about the opportunity have been are starting to do it. I think even the most hardened Trump supporters, the Matt Gateses and the you know th- these guys that have never said a bad word about Trump and even the media characters like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram who who have made their careers now on just being Trump 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 all the time and how great he is. I think even them they're going to be in a position where they don't want to talk about him. That's why everything is riding on Trump losing this election. He has to lose this election because it's not just about Trump. It's about Trumpism. And I think if Trump wins, you are then going to have people like Trump for the foreseeable future. If Trump loses, there's going to be sort of a meeting among Republicans in Congress, and it's going to be like, let's not talk about Trump too much, or let's not answer quite. Let's just pivot to something else, or our values, or our policies that we care about, or new people in the party that we want to prop up, people like Ben Sass or something. But I also think there might be room for Mitt Romney in there. You know, it's a very interesting thing what Mitt Romney has been doing. Now, Mitt Romney's really old right now, but he in four years will only be as old as Joe Biden is right now. He might be, and a lot of people think this is crazy to even think about, but if Trump loses, there's a reasonable case to be made that Mitt Romney could sit down with the Republicans and say, listen, you guys lost a lot with Trump. Not only did you lose the election, but you lost so many uh, you know, suburban women. I could bring all those people back. And the Democrats are now showing me this newfound respect. Mitt became incredibly electable after he lost. He did the Netflix documentary, started to step out more. He really came into his own after he lost the election. And maybe that was part of that awakening, but he really became electable afterwards. You know, it's an interesting thing. I'm not going to say that I could I could read his mind, but it just seems that this might be a strategy for him. Why else would he really be, uh, you know, it's not just about his principles. There's always a political calcula- calculation. After every single time he's done everything. I mean, he stepped out with the letter he wrote, with the speeches he gave, he's given, with marching at the Black Lives Matter protest. I mean, after everything, I'm like, gosh, is he thinking about running again? And then he, he sort of dips back into the forest. Totally. And, and the Republicans will be in a great position to sort of say, you know, Mitt Romney tried to warn us all about this with that whole speech, and we should have listened to him. And you know what? He's not a bad guy, and he is a guy who could bring people together. And if the Democrats are going to put up Joe Biden again, who's going to be like 1,048 years old, or if it's going to be his VP pick, who's probably going to be like a you know Kamala Harris or someone like that, 
I think Mitt would actually have a, a, a pretty decent chance of winning because there, most Republicans will be able to pivot back as much as they say they hate him now. They'll still be in a binary choice environment. They'll be able to vote for him. So it'll be a really interesting time. It, on the other hand, like we said, if Trump wins, good luck. Good luck. Because now you will only have Trump-like character. It's going to be Trumpism is the winner. It's the winner attitude. I just want to fast forward. I just think it's going to be so much more interesting. I think you're going to see Nikki Haley. Maybe you see Mitt. You know, you're going to have open air. And I think that that's going to be much more interesting than what's happening now. Yeah. Let's break for our ad. So in our continuing ad series on things that we like that we think you'll like too, enter Din Tai Fung. Now, I remember the first time I went to Din Tai Fung, it was in Arcadia. I, you actually took me, Riz. The wait was significant, but as soon as we received our basket of piping hot soup dumplings, I forever understood why one must wait. It's near perfection, and now I have a location right next to my house. And before the crisis, you could often find me and my wife there, and I know uh, you and Bubs uh, would go a lot too. Yes, yes. Uh, it is one of our favorite restaurants. We have been going since it... Since we got to LA, we used to drive literally an hour both ways just to eat dumplings. They are the best. You should find out if there's a Din Tai Fung near you. I've actually been to a Din Tai Fung in Japan. Did wow, you know that, Jay? I did not know that. That's uh, was it. Was it better? It was the same quality as it always is, as one would expect. You should go into the Din Tai Fung, and they always have a window where you could see the guys making the little dumplings. The kids love it. It's, uh, I just can't wait to get back because, you know, we're still under these COVID rules and you have to go in. I think it's open now, but you have to wear the mask and everything. I just want to take the mask off and scream at the top of my lungs. I love this place. And I want to scream that this is a place for you as well. So if you have a Din Tai Fung near you, go there, try some soup dumplings. Don't try to make them on your own because you will fail. Don't live life as a failure. That's right. Don't live life as a failure. I had it tonight. You should too. Don't wait. Go to Din Tai Fung. So uh, to wrap this up, I wanted to talk a little bit since we've talked so much uh, about the left and the failings of certain elements on the left. And now we've done a whole episode on the right and their personal failings. I wanted to talk a little bit about what progressivism should be about. And in my usual fashion, I am going to use another example. I want to talk about the Katie Hill dilemma. For those who don't know Katie Hill, uh, she was the representative from California's 25th district. Um, I wasn't that familiar with her politics. I know she was a, a super lefty. Um, but the, the other thing about Katie Hill that you might know if you follow the news is that she was stripping like half of her subordinates. Apparently <laughs> the way she was caught was really bad. I think it was sort of like a revenge porn thing. I think she's in a lawsuit and I think there's even jail time being considered for, I think it was her ex-husband or something who don't dox me if I get this wrong, but, but you'll let, you'll let us know. We'll clarify it. That's bad. Uh, revenge porn is bad. The, the way that this was, uh, that the world learned about this was bad, but the fact remains that she was having a sexual relationship with at least one. I think there was actually two of her staffers. And there is this thing called the Congressional Rule of Ethics. And in that book, it says that Congress people are not to have sexual relationships with their staff. Now, I believe in rules. And I believe that the Democrats have to be very stringent about following the rules. And the reason for that is because Republicans often don't follow the rules. So you had a lot of people on the left, a lot of my left left-wing friends who were saying, you know, Republicans do that kind of stuff all the time. She shouldn't step down. Rules or laws you believe should be followed? 
Well, here's the thing. There is no law that says two consenting adults can't have a sexual relationship, okay? And I think there was three consenting adults in this case. Again, as a liberal, I want to reiterate, as I've reiterated now a dozen times on this episode, I don't care what you're doing in your bedroom. That is not my place. But what I do care about is if you are breaking the rules. And it does say in the rules that you cannot have a sexual relationship with your subordinates. And I believe in rules. Now, two things could be true at once. Number one, rules must be followed at all times. Okay, that is a really important thing, especially in Congress. We must follow the rules. Okay, number two, some rules are stupid. What progressivism is about, and you could write this down, okay, and say it to yourself in the mirror tomorrow morning. What progressivism is about is not breaking the rules, but changing the rules. That's what it means to be a progressive, okay? We don't break the rules, we change the rules. So I had a lot of friends who, I came down really hard on, on Katie Hill because I thought she should resign over what happened. And a lot of friends of mine were saying, well, you know, this is typical of Democrats. They always eat their own. The Republicans never do this. They stick together and they would never kick somebody out for that kind of thing. Maybe you're right. To me, this isn't an example of eating your own. Let me give an example of that. When Hillary Clinton called half of Trump supporters deplorables, and which I didn't find anything wrong with, that's politics. People call people names in politics all the time. There's, to me, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, no, there's nothing in the rule book that says you can't say something like that. And then half of the Democratic Congress said that she should apologize. That's eating your own, okay? When Al Franken who was a, one of the few mud-slinging Democrats who was actually a re, who did a really good job at that, who we could really use right about now, was accused of sexual harassment. Sexual, you know, he had some revealing pictures, but it was never proven anything. There was no proof. It had happened like twenty years ago. There were, you know, and, and and everyone, all the Democrats said that he should step down. That's eating your own. But to ask somebody to step down who has blatantly broken rules and then admitted to breaking those rules, that is not wrong. What progressivism should be about, again, is changing the rules. So an example on that would be Obama on the same-sex marriage thing. Before we even get into that example, the Katie Hill situation, is that wrong in your eyes because a rule was broken or because she did something that was wrong? Only because a rule was broken. As I've said now, I'll, I'll reiterate again. I don't care what Katie Hill is doing in her bedroom. It has no effect on me. It, it, her politics is completely aside from anything she's doing in her personal life. As a liberal, that is part of what liberalism is about. I wouldn't have a relationship with two of my subordinates. I just wouldn't do it. But she's, she's a, a consenting adult can do that. It's perfectly fine. The only reason she couldn't do that is because there was a there was a rule that said she couldn't do it. Aren't certain sets of rules based on that morality? And isn't some people would just consider morality a set of rules? Well, here's the thing, Jay, I mean, and we could disagree on this, but I think it's a stupid rule, honestly. And I was just about to get to that. Um, I think that the idea that consenting adults can't have a relationship is stupid. And therefore, I think it was right for Katie Hill to step down. And I think that if you th if a rule is stupid, there is a democratic small d process for changing that rule. But I also think it's questionable who wants to change the rules and why and where does that line get drawn? You know, does it end with Bernie? Does it end with socialism? If we just keep changing the rules, do we ultimately lose the soul of the country? 
there again, there's a democratic small D process for changing the rules. And in and our system was built with checks and balances for a reason because it's very, very hard to change rules. You have to have a lot of people agreeing in a lot of specific different places in a lot of parts of the uh, uh, of our government in order to change the rule. It was built like that by the founders for a very specific reason so that rules would be hard to change, okay? But the point is we did it with same-sex marriage, okay? When Obama came into office, he was very opposed to same-sex marriage. He evolved on this. He saw that the country was evolving on this. He you know, and, and when Obergefell, which was the, the June 2015 Supreme Court case, uh, made all same-sex marriages legal, that was a huge achievement for Obama, okay? But it went through the normal course of changing the rules, okay? It, it needed to have the votes. It needed to go to the Supreme Court. It was very complicated. It didn't just poof, Obama wanted it to happen, and it happened. You know, there is a democratic process for changing the rules, and changing the rules is what it is what progressivism is about. Progressivism is about rules that are antiquated, rules that don't make sense anymore. We change those rules, but we don't break the rules. So here's the moral of the Katie Hill story, okay? Ready? Number one, don't stop your subordinates. But if you must, take out the rule book first and see. And if you can't, don't do it. But maybe there's a democratic process you could go through in order to get that rule changed. That is progressivism to me. I rest my case, Jeff. Progressivism for Dummies by Rob Leifer. We had a lot more for you guys today, but we've already gone long enough. I mean, th this is complex stuff and it ignites a lot of conversation and we hope it will do the same to you and we hope that you guys respond. We literally on our outline have half still like 50% stuff that we didn't get to that we'll probably get to next week. So, uh, or maybe the week after we'll see. So, uh, Jay, anything else to say? Yes. I have one more thing to say. You should go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. And if you send us questions, we'll answer them on air, just like we did today. It was a, it was an answer to a question that took an hour and 20 minutes. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. It's kind of comical now even saying the word Twitter because no one's following us on Twitter. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're there for it. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can follow me at, at Justin Siegel on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can follow Rob at Rob Leifer at Twitter. But again, no one uses Twitter. You could try to find me on Facebook. Again, like I said last week, I am the best looking Rob Leifer when you put that in. I, I really am objectively. I'm not saying that just as an ego thing. Like there's like four Rob Leifers. I am objectively the best looking one. And I have an Instagram too. Jay tags me all the time. Follow Jay and you'll find me somehow. At the beginning of this podcast, Riz said to me, I'm not going to really put up any of my socials. And then the first week, he did Twitter. And the second week, he was like, all right, you follow me on Facebook. And now he's finally opened up his Instagram. And I, we're out of social media uh, handles for you. We got to make some more on like, uh, uh, I don't know what you're going to do next. Twitch? Twitch. Yeah, Twitch. And what are, what are the other kids do? Uh, TikTok. What do the, the kids, kids do? do the TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which, by the way, is like a Chinese front company. And they're, <laughs> they're, apparently, they're apparently like spying, spying on you when you sign in. More on that in our conspiracy theories episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gang. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we're excited. We hope you uh, you like this episode. And also, always make sure to give us five stars. Five stars. Um, five stars. If you're going to give us four stars, don't give us any stars. It's not worth it. We'd rather zero than four. So give us five. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> 
Exactly. All right. Uh, signing off. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.